Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. Support for today's episode comes from Benedictine University's Center for Values-Driven Leadership, where they offer a PhD program for senior executives who want to build strong, positive cultures that deliver exceptional performances. The unique curriculum combines academic rigor with insights you can put to work on Monday morning. Through the three-year program, you become an expert in the aspect of leadership you're most passionate about so you can have a transformative impact in your business, and on society. Find out how you can lead your company while you earn your PhD. Visit cbdl.ben.edu slash doctorate for more information or Google PhD Values Leadership. That's PhD Values Leadership. My guest today is William Vanderblomen, founder and CEO of Vanderblomen Search Group. William has been able to combine over 15 years of ministry experience as a senior pastor to provide churches with a unique offering, a deep understanding of local church work with the very best knowledge and practices of executive search. Welcome, William. Oh, it's so good to be with you, Paul. Thanks for having me. Well, that combination already sounds really interesting and unique. Uh, How did you get into the business? And tell us a little bit about what the business does today. Yeah, well, I think uh, I, I got into the business because of everything I'd done up till now. It was almost an accidental success. Uh, I'd, I'd led churches for a long time and then went into the corporate sector. And uh, while I was in the corporate sector, um, got to watch. I was working at a Fortune 200 company, and they'd had a CEO who'd been there about nine years, which, you know, is just a lifetime for a company that size. And he announced his impending retirement and succession. Uh, They put together a group, they studied, they did their succession, and they named the successor within about 100 days. And that successor is still there 10 years later and doing very well. And so you get, you know, right at 20 years of uninterrupted leadership. Well, drop back to, to my previous life as a pastor. Churches are not very efficient at this, and even the best churches. Uh, the church I served most recently, I was senior pastor of, is uh, First Presbyterian of Houston. Uh, it's where Sam Houston went to church, so it's mm-hmm. not a not a startup, um, but uh, been around a while, and and frankly, kind of, uh, this may sound crass, but kind of a brass ring of a, of a job. It's a, it's a great church. Uh, about 5,000 adults and a couple thousand kids and a school with several hundred children. Uh, so it's a, it's a big job. And they took almost three years to find me. And then I was there just under six years and they took two and a half years to find my successor. Wow. So you got 11 years plus or minus, right? And about half that time with a senior leader and half the time looking for a senior leader with lots of lost momentum and lots of lost, frankly, revenue, lots of lost vision, um, membership. And, and that's just sort of par for the course and normal, even in a great church like that. So, so here I am, 
uh, in this corporate experience, watching this mammoth company with a bigger market cap than Starbucks at the time, and and they have within a hundred days successfully replaced their top guy. And I'm looking at that, saying that is beautiful and elegant and efficient. Why can't the church have something as beautiful and elegant as efficient and as efficient as what I just saw in the corporate world? And and so I. Uh, I, Adrian and I had just gotten married. We're a blended family, and uh, we have six kids. We just bought a house, and I came home from my job, and I said, "Baby, I think I'm supposed to quit my job and, <laughs> and start something new for churches." And uh, she looked at me and said, "That that's because churches just love new ideas, right?" <laughs> so, and, and and the kicker uh, is that it was 2008 which was just a brilliant time to quit your job and start something new for churches. So, yeah, it was just, so we sort of fell into it, but, but I think, uh, the experience of leading a large church gave me some insight as to it's, it's a business, but it's not a business. And then some corporate experience, uh, got melded in there where I don't think I could do what I'm doing today. Had I not done every job leading up to today, if that makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's, it's been a wild ride. We're still learning as we go. And uh, we've been really fortunate to be around some awesome companies like the ones we met at Small Giants and uh, just meeting some people that are driven by saying, could we build something great? And uh, let's let's be driven by that rather than by let's increase the bottom line at all costs. You know, and your company was even awarded uh, the one of the best 25 small giants by Forbes magazine, which is a tremendous honor. Uh, talk about just the uh, size, scope of the, co- the company today, uh, mm-hmm. kind of market serve, number of employees, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, we're a micro niche company, right, Paul? I mean, you know, I get on a plane and you sit down and you do the what's your name and the what do you do thing when you talk to people. Uh, and uh, when they ask me what I do, if I haven't got my headphones on, quick enough that I have to answer. I, I answer and I say, well, we help churches find their pastor. And everybody says, I never knew there was one of those. Yeah. So, so it's a tiny little space, right? Uh, but within that, um, we, uh, let's see, last year we successfully completed more searches than any other search firm in any industry in the city of Houston, except for one. Uh, and uh, we've probably over. We're not quite to fifteen hundred successful searches yet, but we'll we'll get there pretty soon. Uh, which in the world of executive search is 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 a pretty big number. It's this is not we're finding branch managers for banks. It's it's the top level job for an organization. And uh, scope we work primarily in the U.S., primarily in the Protestant Church, but we've got plenty of Catholic clients and our international uh, portfolio is growing pretty quickly. We have, uh, I think, 44 full-time employees today. Uh, the day's not over yet, but uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> right now it's 44 and uh, they're all here in Houston. We're kind of old school and make people move and actually show up at a real office. And uh, I've got good friends that don't do it that way, but uh, it's what works for us. So yeah, there you go. One of the things that comes to mind uh, is this idea of what companies do, how they focus, and how they make decisions about uh, how to limit uh, their, not so much their growth, but to be the best in the world at something. And it seems to me that, uh, at least up to now, you've made this decision to to take these tools and focus on churches. Uh, is it is it because 
you just want to stay focused on that is because, wow, there's just so many churches that we uh, we think we can still get to that we haven't gotten to. Or the natural question is, well, why don't you just take these same great tools and go to other industries? Yeah, it's a great question. We, we had the advantage of starting from scratch so we could learn the best ideas from existing search firms. The industry is maybe 60 years old, something like that, and applying some of those, but then doing things a little differently. And it's been really cool to see, uh, you know, I'll go to, there's this thing called the AESC, which is essentially the Bar Association for Search People, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, they'll ask me to speak at something and I, you know, tell them how we're doing things. And everybody's like, Oh my gosh, you're doing it that way. So, so we are doing things a little bit differently and there is a temptation to say, well, why don't we go into these industries here, there and yon? But, but for me, the real, uh, uh, not, not to get too religious in tone, but the real calling that I felt was looking at how clunky the search process was in churches and how elegant it could be in the business world and saying, can we bring a new idea to church, which takes a long, long time. And, uh, I mean, I could bore you with lots of details about market size and, and what we're studying and learning about how far we could expand before we had to go to a different direction. But we, we're, we're not even really to the tip of the iceberg with what we could do. So uh, there is some temptation to spread out. There is, you know, a sense of, uh, well, maybe we could go into uh, every now and then we'll do relief organizations or a faith-based school or you've got companies that are faith-based, like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby and that sort of thing. And, and we'll do work for them. But the, the backbone of the work right now and, and for the foreseeable future is churches call us to help them find their pastor. Hmm. Incredible. Um, so let me take you back a little bit, because as you said, this became uh, something you in a way fell into after this long career, a uh, career that's... Uh, started quite early on and and I and I'd love to hear influences in you developing your own leadership abilities you know talk about your parents early jobs school anything that comes to mind yeah no I I had um you know when (laughs) when I was in high school I I, if you want to understand William for good bad or indifferent uh don't don't think of me as search guy um and don't think of me as a pastor uh, think of me as an eight-year-old paper boy. So, which, oh my gosh, it's just too bad. They don't let kids do that job anymore. What a great <laughs> job for young g- girls and boys. I had to manage a P&L. I had to go buy my papers from the paper. I had to go collect. And I mean, it was awesome. It's great training. But but when I was paper boy and uh, my parents were smart enough to say, if you're going to do this, you're doing it on your own. We're not going to drive you around. We're not going to. So it was on me, you know, rain, sleet, snow, all that. And, uh, in that time I had on my paper route, uh, this one road and it seemed like it was a mile long. Now, if I went back now, it's probably a couple hundred yards, right? But there was only one house that took the paper on this one long dirt road. And, uh, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina. Uh, if you, if you're old enough to have seen the movie deliverance, it's pretty close to that. Mm. And, uh, so I, I would go down this long dirt road deliver the paper. And there waiting on me every afternoon was my arch nemesis, uh, this dog that didn't have a leash and he would chase me all the way back down the road. And I just hated it. So, you know, how do I fix this problem? Well, I sat down and I looked at the paper route map and I realized that the three paper routes that surrounded my route were all really inefficiently drawn. 
And so I went to the paper boys of those three routes and I bought them out and I redesigned the paper routes so that mine was more central. Frankly, it was a little more profitable. And most importantly, it got rid of the dog (laughs) and uh, then sold off the pieces back to uh, other people. And if you want to like, that's how my mind has thought since uh, a little boy. And that might, now you might have people dropping off the podcast, not wanting to listen to a Machiavellian <laughs> paper boy, but, but, but that guy is the guy that grew up. Uh, and when I was, uh, uh, in high school, um, senior, you know, they give out superlatives for everything. And the superlative I got was most likely to succeed. Well, fast forward 10 years, uh, I'd gone through a pretty, severe prodigal journey and then a big faith awakening and became a pastor. I go to my 10 year high school reunion as a pastor and I unanimously won the award for least likely career choice. (laughs) So, (laughs) so it's almost like, uh, and, and while I was really fortunate to have great opportunities to serve some really fabulous churches, uh, and do it at a, a very young age within that industry. Um, you know, I, I was always a little bit of a misfit, a little too entrepreneurial for established traditional churches. And now it feels like uh, there's a confluence of everything I've learned about how the church functions, you know, down to volunteers and boards and committees. And then that paper boy that wants to go be an entrepreneur. And I've, I've got a chance to do both things at once. So I, I kind of feel like the dog that caught the bumper right now. And uh, it, it's a lot of fun. Uh, so talk a little bit about those early, uh, experiences as a pastor. And, um, did you start to see where your leadership, uh, skills, even the entrepreneurial skills could have an impact on the way you led these congregations? I I did. I, I think, uh, so in the church world, in the world of pastors, there's a, I'd, I'd love to know the percentage, but it's a very large percentage of people who are pastors had a parent who was a pastor. It's just sort of family business, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have any of that. In fact, when I told uh, my family at a big family dinner that I was going to go into pastoring, my grandmother said, oh, good. Now we have one to get us all in. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So, uh, you know, I, I didn't know any better. And I figured I grew up in this small town going to a larger church within the small town, but it was still just kind of a small town church. And I thought I'd be a pastor of that sort of thing. In fact, I went to Princeton for seminary and then came back to Western North Carolina and was an associate pastor at a church very similar to the one I grew up in. And and while I was there, I started doctoral work. I got a little bit bored. And uh, in my doctoral work, one of my first classes took me to a conference, and it was at a church uh, that had been founded with the idea of reaching people who didn't want to go to church. And that meant trying all new methods. It meant throwing out all the traditions and with a singular focus, like they de- they developed a persona, uh, unchurched Harry and unchurched Mary. And here's the car they drive and here's just like a marketing department would. Mm. And said, so how do we go? At-? Well, I went to that conference and a light bulb went off my head. It was like, oh my gosh, you don't have to just be uh, sort of a, a custodian or keeper of the sheep. You know, it's it's uh, I read a line while I was there in a book that said, you know, God called us to be fishers of people, not keepers of the aquarium. And uh, it made me say, let's go out there and find some new let's win new customers, you know, for a lack of a better way of saying it. And, and that set me off in a totally different journey. And 
Uh, during from there went on to be a lead pastor of a church in Alabama where we had some really great success at turning the place around and some good, good people there. And, uh, we did a few things that caught the eye of some other folks. And before you know it, Houston had called me at, at 31. Now, you know, I think, I don't know, Paul, maybe you can relate to this. The, when I was 31, um, the best thing I had going for me was I knew everything. Oh yeah, you know, for sure. So, so I think my arrogance probably blinded me to just how, uh, how good I was at ticking people off by blowing stuff up. I, I mm-hmm. so, so it, it would depend on who you asked in the church, whether I'm doing a good job or not. Really, really entrepreneurial people be like, yeah, I mean, some stuff blows up every now and then, but we're trying new things. Dear sweet folks that just want their church they've had forever might have a very different story. So I, I think it was, uh, always sort of a push pull of, uh, whether or not that entrepreneurial skill was a help or not, but it certainly woke up about halfway through my pastoral career. Oh yeah. And, uh, the, uh, there's a business side, obviously that many people don't even think about to, uh, churches and what goes on behind the scenes. And, and, uh, and I'm sure you started to see the impact you could have early on, there as well. Can you think of a time where maybe you had an unexpected learning from an unexpected source? Um, I'll tell you a great one. There was a guy in our church uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, and the church had just been through hell. I mean, they'd been through two church splits in six years, and I knew that going in. It was it was a total mess, uh, but that's what I wanted. I wanted to go to a turnaround situation and see what I could do. And, uh, you know, we were very fortunate to have a lot of turnaround one of the first cool things that happened was one of the really great leaders uh, from the 20 years prior in the church, when it was a big, booming place, came back. Uh, he was a car dealer in town, uh, very high bias for action. At, and there were two things I learned from him, probably in a, in a week's span. Uh, we were sitting in a board meeting, and we were having our budget meeting, and uh, we got into a debate over a new expense for some new furniture for the handbell choir, if you can imagine. I mean, I know that Mm -hmm. sounds just, but it turned into this kind of lengthy conversation over stupid handbell tables, right? We got done with the thing and and Todd came up to me afterward and he said, you know what, William, that is the last $500 decision I sit in. Hmm. If that's what you're going to do in these meetings, I'm not the right guy. And it was like, whoa, I'd Hmm. never thought of time value money on a church side. Why are we, how expensive is it for all of us to sit here and argue about, we spent way more than $500 sitting there arguing. And it was, it was a, a really unexpected basic business lesson that believe it or not, they don't teach you in seminary. Uh, so that, that was one lesson. And then two, three days later, uh, we were talking about, uh, acquiring some land and, and doing a little different deal. And with this same gentleman and, uh, he said, I think you need to call this place that let us rent space while we're you know, building on our new land. And I said, that'd be great. And so we're standing in my office and he just looked at me and he looked down at the phone and he said, well, I said, what do you mean? He said, why don't you call him right now? And I said, well, you know, we're here. He said, look, William, let me tell you what I've learned in business. If you've got time to take care of it now, take care of it now. And, and to this day, that has been the backbone of a lot of our success in our company. I, like one of our nine cultural values, which is a big deal in our company, uh, and it, we live by these nine values. They're a huge part of what's given us success and, and helped us recruit our staff and keep them. Uh, but one of the nine that we've really lived by is one that we call ridiculous responsiveness. 
So, so that if you, Paul, uh, are on our website and you fill out a form saying, hey, I'd like to talk to somebody, we're looking for a pastor, we, someone from our team will be back to you personally in 60 seconds. And uh, the, the, the number of times we've gotten responses saying, oh my gosh, you got back to me right away. You just went ahead and did it. And it's, it's amazing. And now we're finding data and studies that show it's really not hard to win the sales conversation. All you have to do is get right back to people. And when I hear that kind of thing, I'm right back in my study at that church in Alabama with my friend who's telling me, why don't you just pick up the phone and do it right now? So those were two places that were kind of light bulb moments early in my career that are still carrying on today. The, the time value money of how important is this decision that we're all spending time on it? And secondly, just just get it done. Just get back to people. Man, I just love love hearing that because I, I've lived that way my whole career. And to this day, uh, I, even if it's somebody that reaches out on LinkedIn or something like that, um, I just take the couple seconds it takes to respond. And they're always just blown away that I even responded to them. And uh, And I've always been that type that just found that everybody, whether it's my own employees or a vendor, anybody, they're all my customers. And the least mm. I could do is to be responsive to them. And, and it's something I became known for all the time. It's not, and, uh, you know, got me in trouble sometimes, maybe at dinner when exactly. the, yeah, you yeah. Know, the wife said, you know, pay attention. But, uh, uh, but I just felt that it was uh, an incredible, uh, way to build relationships and so simple to do and such a great discipline. And I'm so happy to hear that it's a, a core value of yours. You know, um, you've built this wonderful company that's known for uh, it, the culture that you've created for your employees. I'm really interested in this concept of, uh, of course, my whole career has been around employee engagement and culture. But uh, occasionally I'll, I'll get a call. I'm not uh, particularly involved in, in a church or anything like that. But I get calls from people either in church or in schools and find that that some of, uh, honestly, kind of the dysfunction in the culture of those organizations is really uh, surprising compared to what you would naturally think. Do you get, do you, you know, one, does that, do you agree with that? Do you see that? And two, does your, uh, your business allow you the ability to have an impact, not just on the recruiting for that pastor, but um, on the culture of those organizations that you serve? Oh, totally. I, you know, one thing I didn't foresee, Paul, we we started out on a card table. You know, uh, I came home and Adrian said, that's because churches just love new ideas. And she should have said, now go back to work, William. We've got to feed a family. But she said, let's give it a try. So we started just me. And she said, if you ever get a client, I'll send out the invoice. And uh, so, you know, it was pretty duct tape paper clips for a long time. And, and then we finally outgrew we were in, I think, what was a frat house. We would take one room at a time until we finally had all 900 square feet. It was pretty amazing. And mm -hmm. and then we moved, and we're trying to keep you know overhead down because I'm highly allergic to unnecessary overhead. <laughs> and uh, we found 5,000 square feet, which I'm so glad OSHA never visited because they would have shut us down like in a heartbeat. Mm -hmm. uh, it was bad. And and. Two years ago, we moved into, we finally had to grow up and move into a real office space. So we were able to design and uh, build around our cultural values an office space that reflects who we are. And I thought, well, this would be cool. Uh, I want to have, an, if I'm going to pay this much, I want to enjoy the office. Uh, I mean, we did it with Ikea furniture, so it's not ornate. But uh, I thought it was for our own benefit and for recruiting our own people and all that. What I did not foresee was 
the conversion rate that I would see from having anybody not connected to our office walk into our office because they sense the culture, they get around the people, they see the values on the wall, they see the unique layout, and they're like, this is cool. If we have a pastor in, even if they're coming in for a workshop or a coaching group or whatever, the the chance that they're going to hire us to do a search within a year is like in the 90 percentile range because they've walked in the door and seen and felt our culture. So I don't know if that's part of what you're driving at, but when people get around a workplace that people want to be in, it's unusual. I mean, two out of three Americans hate their job. So it's contagious. Uh, And then by the same token, when we send our people out into other churches, if they're taking the chance on us to say, we're going to let you into our, uh, you know, pretty sacred space of find our next spiritual leader, if you do a good job of that, then they're asking you, you know, which kind of toilet paper should we buy? What should we paint the church? You know, everything under the sun. And invariably they're saying, how do we build a place like you've built where people want to come work here and don't want to leave? And, uh, you know, we, we had the chance, uh, we did win a ridiculous amount of awards in a nice long run there. And, uh, my team talked me into writing a book about our story, but I said, let's not do that. Let's write a book. It's called Culture Wins. And uh, it's our story, but it's undergirded with interviews with 150 CEOs of companies that are also winning culture awards to say, what, what is it that creates a sticky workplace? And the, the more I got around those people, the more I realized when their clients came to them, they were affected by good culture. And when they went to their clients, their clients were like, how do we build that same good culture? So it, if you can get it right in the workplace, I think it is highly contagious to the good. Yeah, so true. Uh, my business was a healthcare call center business. And uh, you think of the call center, you're thinking of the low morale, high attrition, boiler room operation. We worked with hospitals all over the U.S. and uh, they're outsourcing their services to us where we're going to pick up the phone and, and answer in the name of the hospital. And we could be 2,000 miles away. So the one thing that we would do, the closer in making the sale, was we would send them an American Airlines ticket, uh, ticket jacket and say, just come and see, just come and visit us. And wow. we'd, we'd bring them out to Dallas and they'd walk in and we had a big 400 seat center that would have been the converted Walmart. And they would walk in the door and just feel the vibe. And right away, they knew that they were in a special place. And, and same thing, 90% of the time we would close the deal because they said, if they're going to create a place like this, then not only are they going to represent our organization well, But we love what we're seeing so much that maybe their kind of cultural norms can rub off on us. And I think that that was some of the greatest fulfillment I got in serving our customers was not answering calls for them, but the impact we could have on their cultures long term. Uh, You know, when I think about the search business, I don't always have positive recollections. No, no, no. I remember I remember a time. And we didn't have to use uh, search firms very much, but we did occasionally for maybe more senior level positions. And I remember one time when we had used a retained search firm, which means we were kind of paying either way, right? And we were putting all our eggs in that basket. And we hired this high level sales guy and found out three months later that, um, he never actually left the job he had previously been working for. And I and to be honest, it's just I'd say it tongue in cheek because I don't blame the search firm. There was like 
you know, I don't think how often do you even have to ask, have you actually quit your job, you know, the job you're working in now? <laughs> do you have to really verify that? You know, you kind of expect that. But it was just one of those funny, uh, one of those funny instances. But um, we don't always have great experiences that way or, or always great success stories. So you mentioned before how you, uh, you do things differently. Uh, tell us how, how you do that um, so that it would apply not only in, in trying to bring in somebody to lead a church, but any organization. Well, I think that you're so spot on. And Paul, that when I was a senior pastor, I was kind of, I guess, innovative. And I thought, well, I'll try using a headhunter for a, a search for a position for us. And, you know, there weren't search firms for churches, but there you might find a guy here or there and say, I could do that. And, you know, every time I got off the phone with him, I felt like I needed to take a shower. You know, it was just nasty. And it's like I was going to meet in a dark alley. I don't know if you're a Mad Men guy, but the search guy in that show was, you know, yeah. he had to yeah. meet in the shadows. He was a recovering alcoholic and the whole, I mean, it was just, you know, not cool, right? So um, we've tried to build in a way that is different than that. And and one of the keys that we're learning, and we're still learning, right? We're no, nobody bats a thousand. But one of the keys we found is from a good friend of mine named Dave Ramsey. Dave's uh, on the radio quite a bit. Yeah. He talks about people balancing their budget been a friend and, and a client for a long time. And he said to me one time, he said, William, you know, I, I sell a widget, right? But what I'm finding is nearly every customer satisfaction issue is actually a sales issue. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the widget's the same no matter what. It doesn't change. So somewhere in the sales, my salespeople set the expectations in the wrong spot. And when the deliverable came through, the customer is frustrated. If the salespeople will set the expectations at the right spot, you'll have fewer customer satisfaction problems. And I think, you know, recruiters, by their nature, search people, recruiters, wherever you call them, are always selling the best of the best. Oh, this is a great church. They have thousands of people. No, they don't have thousands of people. You know, oh, this is great. Mm -hmm. And and just by their nature, they're salespeople. And what I've had to learn to do in myself and to dial back in our salespeople is the desire to oversell. And, and if anything, let's, let's not way undersell. Let's deliver exactly what we say. And then, you know, if you get a really tough call about a tough search, you say, hey, this is going to be hard. And, and, and we, we can do a lot of things, but we can't pull a rabbit out of a hat. Now, it, it helps that we've done some really great work for churches that a whole lot of people look up to. So our body of work, as it continues to increase, gives us more and more credibility to say what we say. But I, I also think uh, one of the places, very small percentage of search firms are retainer-based. Most of them are, you don't have to pay me unless right. you find my, you know, yeah. I find your guy. Well, that just creates a real competitive salesy relationship. So we said, no, we may not make as much money, but we're doing purely retainer-based, and that's that. And that way, we don't have to sell you on anything, it's, you know, going to happen. Now it's a higher risk for us because if we don't get it done, then it's like, good night. We paid all this money and we got nothing. But uh, for, for us, I think it's, it's a balance of setting expectations in the proper spot and just making sure that uh, the, the best sales team we have is doing a good job. So learning to say no to work that you know we can't do, which is a pain. Every entrepreneur wants to win every deal. But but 
learning to set right expectations and only taking work you can really execute. I, I think that's been a a big plus for us. And I do think it's different than the way most of the industry works. Now, one other thing that we do that's very, very different. Uh, I don't know any other search firm in the corporate world that it is structured in such a way that we have a sales team and our consultants are not allowed to sell anything. So they're coming to meet with you. They are not allowed to sell you anything. You want to have a conversation about another search? Sorry, you got to talk to the sales team. I'm here to get this job done. And that's a very different way. And it's very complex how to set that up, but, but it's, uh, it's set us apart in a way that's very different. Yeah. So you've kind of separated those two functions. Um, and, and the funny thing is when you talked about the sales, uh, kind of it's all in the sales. I, I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, the battles between the salespeople and the implementation folks who were, uh, you know, where the implementation and account management folks were always yelling about, you know, why'd you sell this? Why'd you sell that? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't always blame the salespeople, right? Because even if sometimes you set realistic expectations, uh, it still could be that down the road, down the line somewhere, we've uh, we've made a mistake in execution or whatever. But but by and large, I think your point is so well taken that uh, if we can set real ex- realistic expectations up front and... And by kind of separating those functions, you've given yourselves a much better chance of doing that. William, if you think about your uh, leadership journey, uh, what's kind of the most humbling decision you've had to make? Oh, wow. Golly, there are a bunch of them because I was pretty proud. And that usually leads to a pretty humble spot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're too proud, you're going to fall. Um, you know, I, I this... I'll risk being a little too personal here, but uh, everybody's like, well, you did so great in the church. Why'd you go to the business world? I went through a divorce and, uh, you know, it's not anything I'd suggest to people. um, And it wasn't really anything you'd read about in the tabloids, but it was just kind of a long, tragic thing. And I ended up for, I won't go into gory details, but for reasons we won't go into, I ended up having to be the one to say, okay, it's time to call this. Mm. And I knew, I mean, you know, ways to shorten your career as a pastor, (laughs) file for divorce, that will do it. Um, and I had a multi-book deal and we had TV show and we were up and coming and the young thing and all that. And, and to realize I, I can't fix this. I got to, I got to do what's right for my children and me. And that means I'm going to have to push all my career chips to the center of the table with no real idea about what I was going to do next. Uh, that, that knocked me off my horse pretty good. And, and, uh, and I'm not without fault in that. I don't want anyway, want to villainize one side and not the other, but you know, I've never met a divorce that was a one-sided fault, but, uh, yeah. but, but it, that, that one knocked me down pretty good. Well, it seems like you've gotten back up pretty well, too. Um, if you think about where you are today, uh, what's one aspect of leadership you'd like to continue to work on? Mm. You know, my, my, my favorite Ted Turner quote is, um, if I had a little more humility, I'd be perfect. <laughs> <laughs> And that, that could be like a life verse for me. Uh, I've got a long wrestling match with pride. And I think what I'm finding, especially, I mean, not just because it's better to be humble than proud. I mean, it's good to take pride in your work, but I'm talking about like puffed up pride, right? Better to be humble, not just because it's good for your character, but what I'm learning is, you know, there's this surge, like a storm surge of millennials entering the workforce. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and they have zero time for arrogant command and control leaders. And you can complain about it and call them demanding or lazy or disloyal or all the things. I know all the critiques, right? But they're the bulk of the workforce, and that's not going to change for a long, long time. So beyond wanting to be uh, a confident but humble leader because that's a good place for me, like health-wise, it's also a good place for me to, to focus on as a leader in the era that we're headed into in our labor and workforce. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think uh, I, I'm glad for the millennials. A lot of people call them fickle and job hoppers and all of that, but I think that they're uh, out to make the world a better place, and I think that they're, they don't have the patience for leaders that are going to be command and control style leaders. They want to be valued. They want to be listened to. They want to be collaborative. I think it's a wonderful transition that we're, we're going through. Um, Could, couldn't agree more. I'm so bullish on them as a generation. Probably 70% of our employees are under 35. So I've, and I'm not old enough to be their dad and I'm not young enough to be their buddy. So I'm having to learn. And you know, all these things, like, I just remember, I don't know, Paul, uh, if you can relate, but like when I was eight or nine years old, my favorite time of the week was Saturday morning. It was just the greatest. Mm. And anybody my age goes, Oh yeah. And you say, well, why? And you say, well, that's when the cartoons were on. Yeah. Right. And so turn around and ask a millennial, when are the cartoons on? And they'll just laugh at you. Mm-hmm. They're on whenever I want. Yeah. And, and so this is the first generation that's grown up in an on-demand world. Well, if you grow up in an on-demand world, guess what you end up being? Demanding. Yeah. So a lot of these critiques that I hear are, are, are really short-sighted. It's just how these folks grew up. And we've got to adapt because they can get more work done than I can faster. They're, yeah. they're incredibly efficient. There's a great article on humble leadership in yesterday's Wall Street Journal, uh, by the way. So it is actually uh, the way of the world nowadays, and I'm glad you jumped on that. Um, now, if you were talking to, and I'm sure you do, these young people that come to you for advice, William, about how to grow their careers, uh, what would you, kind of advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out? You know, when I was a young pastor, and uh, here's a lesson I've learned, and I'll explain it. If you throw the party you get to be on the invite list. Now, what do I mean? I'm this young pastor. My grandmother says, oh, now we've got one to get us all in. And she's all excited. I got out of seminary. I didn't know what to do. I didn't have any clue. I mean, I went to Princeton, which is a great education, but it was an education about ideas and not practical, go get mm. it done. It was a typical Ivy League, which I, I wouldn't trade for the world, but like nuts and bolts, I had none of it. And so I just, how am I going to figure this out? So I figured out like three or four older senior pastors who really knew what they were doing and had stood the test of time. And I tried to get around them. And of course I'm nobody and I'm 25 and I'm trying to get on their calendar and they, they, you know, it took forever. And then I realized, what if I did this? So I called about two dozen of the brightest young pastors I knew and said, would you guys get together with me in whatever city? If I can get one of these three or four to come talk. Yes. So I go back to these older guys' offices. I said, I have put together the 24 brightest young pastors that there are in the country, in in our little part of the church world. And we would love it if you'd just come talk to us and tell us what you wish you would have known when you were 25 years old. Hmm. And I never got turned down. And I never would have gotten in the room of bright pastors had I not created the party. So I got on the invite list, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, and then secondly, asking a guy or a gal who's made it 
and been there a long time, man, if you could go visit yourself again at 25, what would you tell yourself to save some stupid tax? I've never had anyone turn down that question. It's almost like everybody wants to share that lesson. So if you're a young leader out there, you're walking into a bifurcated uh, workforce. I mean, there are very few people my age in their 40s. Most people are either boomers or millennials. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, you go to boomers with respect and maybe with four or five really bright friends and say, we're all bright people and we want to learn from you. What do you wish you would have known when you were our age? You won't get turned down, and you'll get some really solid advice. I think that's a that's a great, great suggestion. And sometimes I'm surprised at how uh, few actually follow through with that. Um, I'll go a lot of times and speak at schools, you know, uh, undergrad or MBAs, and you know, they as you as I'm sure you do. There's a small crowd that comes up afterwards and talks to you and hands you their card, and they're going to follow up and all that. And out of those ten people that come, one maybe two actually will. And so that tells you that there's so much more opportunity for people to take advantage of the opportunity to reach out to people, to get mentors. Like you said, and I'm in the boomer generation, um, would never say no to that question. Love being asked. I'm an N of one, but I'm happy to share my experience. And uh, mm. it took me a long time to get out of my own shell in my own business too and finally reach that there was so much wisdom out there. Uh, and I love the way you did that. Um, William, this has been great. What a what a wonderful story that you have. Uh, uh, the impact that you've made, of course, in, in the church world, in business, putting them together like you've done is so unusual and special. It's been recognized in a lot of ways. Um, I want to share some of my reflections, but before I do that, uh, let me let me end with these uh, five quick hit questions like the association game. Just kind of sure. tell me what comes to your mind. Uh, who's a leader that you look up to? Rick Warren. He's an entrepreneurial pastor, started a church called Saddleback, wrote a book called Purpose Driven yeah. Life. Yeah. He, he His book is the best selling nonfiction hardback book ever, except for the Bible. Wow. And uh, he, he really turned how we do church on its head and had people think more strategically. And he, the ripples, you, you'd have to be in the church to know it, but the ripples he's created is it's pretty amazing. Uh, can you think of a, another book that's influenced your leadership style? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's I, I'll just tell you the book title that's influenced my leadership style. It's a book I keep on my desk all the time. It's called What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Yeah, Goldsmith. Exactly. Yeah. And the book's fine, but the title's gold. And that's... I keep it there for a reason. So that when I'm looking down from my desk and I'm thinking about our growth, I need to always ask myself, am I now the lid? Am I the thing that needs to get out of the way so we can go where we hadn't gone before? And by the same token, when staff come in to meet with me, it's there for them to see, to say, you know, if a company really grows fast, some people are going to make it and some people aren't. And that's not a value judgment. That's not a, you're a good or bad person. It's just some people were made to farm on hundred acre farms and some on 10,000. And so keeping that title in front of me keeps me in a self check, but also everyone on our team is just kind of an unspoken value. What got you here won't get you there. And we believe we've got a big task and a big mission in front of us. So we want to keep that lesson uh, right in the front of our brain so we don't trip ourselves up. That's such a great message. And I got that same message from a different book, um, really around the management team as you grew, you know, kind of that realization that the management team that got you from A to B uh, is not going to be the team that gets you from B to C. And you just have to settle with that. Like so the reality is sometimes the 
the company outgrows some of the talent that we have. And so that title could be sort of intimidating, <laughs> you know, sitting on your desk there for people coming in. <laughs> um, but I'm sure that's a, that's a great motivator as well. How about your all-time favorite movie? I, that probably the one I just saw. Which like, is like, whichever one I just saw. I'm I'm I've got a low bar of excellence for movies. I'll watch nearly anything. Yeah. I mean, the probably the best answer to be fair is Shawshank Redemption. It's it's just so good. I've had but, I've had so many people say that that movie. That's the well, one that's been mentioned the most. You you interview entrepreneurs and it's all about endurance and. Uh, Man, that's the definer. But you know what? I've watched Sharknado. I've watched some really, really <laughs> bad movies. So it's, it's uh, Shawshank's going to be my go-to answer, though. So how about besides Mad Men? Is there a TV series you'd like to binge watch? Yeah, I, I'm horrible at this. I, when I'm on the road, I do binge watch on Netflix if I'm not working. And uh, I, it really is the one that I just most recently saw is always uh, the one. And if my church clients are listening, they're going to fire me now. But Golly, Sons of Anarchy might be some of the best TV I've ever oh, seen. The best. So and, good. And then I say Mad Men. Yeah. And then I say, you know, uh, Breaking Bad. And all of a sudden, no churches call me anymore. But, you know, it's, it's just really, really great TV in Sons of Anarchy. So many stories, really, of redemption in the middle of it all. That's a great one. I will, in the same genre, I'll throw in The Wire. Um, yes. As, uh, probably my all time favorite. Um, and then lastly, what's something about you that many people don't know? Oh, man. Uh, unfortunately, with Google, there, most everything is knowable now. Um, maybe that I have seven children. You know, and, yeah. and uh, you know, you're running a company like this and you think, well, he must have, you know, one kid and be on his 17th marriage and, <laughs> you know, having to run all over the country. But I've got an amazing wife and seven kids and we do a ton of stuff together. And, and uh, I, I think people find that in the entrepreneurial world, people find that surprising because I think for entrepreneurs, the whole work life balance question is one that we, we don't do real well as a genre. Well, I don't think there's any such thing anymore. Uh, I, think I, it's, I agree. Uh, I, think I agree it's completely. Just, it's just called life. Um, yep. Well, let me reflect on some of the things I learned, William. Um, just been such a pleasure listening to your story. Uh, one thing that I that I want people to understand is this choice that you've made around staying within your sweet spot. And there's such a, a, a desire by people to just expand and diversify and to think, well, we're good at this, then we're going to be good at the next thing. And there's just something to be said for finding that sweet spot, um, being the best in the world at that, something that Jim Collins talked about a lot. And so the fact that you're able to articulate in one sentence uh, what you do, um, and then you can put your headphones right back on and, and be uh, on the plane and not have to talk to anybody anymore, but to uh, be able to do it that way by wor working just with churches, doing this, this kind of work, um, I think is really special and a great lesson for people. And I hope you kind of stick to that discipline. Uh, I love your story, how early on, um, you know, at eight, at eight, you buy out these other, uh, these other guys that are running paper routes and was, um, a sign of, I think things to come, uh, you know, you pivoted into, into the pastoral world. You've always had this entrepreneurial streak um, get, that gave you a little bit of early arrogance, probably. But that probably worked to your advantage in, in a lot of in a lot of cases. Um, I think the the biggest thing that that I take away that I, I wish more people would uh, 
would do, especially the millennials who aren't always wired this way, is that core value that you have of a ridiculously responsive. If you have time to take care of it now, take care of it now. Um, there's no reason to let things shuffle around in your desk. You know, just get just get it done. I, I love it. Um, nobody bats a thousand. We're not, nobody's perfect. You know, we don't need to oversell. Uh, and I think that's just really uh, as much a, st- a testament around honesty and integrity and the trust that's needed to build relationships in business. Because no matter what business we're in, I think we're in the relationship business. Um, I think you you said the most humbling experience for you was the the courage it took to uh, be the one to end make the decision that it was time to end your marriage, and you had so much going on and so much in front of you and you were willing to put all of that at risk for the betterment of your family and yourself. And, and of course, uh, that took courage, but I, I, you know, easier to said than done and easy to look back, but I, I had no doubt you would have, uh, uh, yet you'd still be seeing some of the success you're seeing today. Um, uh, I love how, uh, you said, you know, if you had a little bit more humility, you'd be perfect. Uh, you know, just that idea that, um, and that's, it's, it's to say that, that you, there's always that balance. You're always battling with that. And and the fact is those young people today can see it from a mile away. Right. And mm. so they're going to, they're going to hold, you know, hold you to, to, uh, uh, to be honest and to, to have integrity around that. Um, and then lastly, the advice you give to young people about, um, seeking, advice from others. And, and like I said, for me in, in the early days, uh, we were just running my brothers and I are kind of mom and pop business. And at some point I realized, even though I was very much of an introvert, I needed to go out and start to meet some other people. And I found just so much wisdom. And I had this small group of people that have been my mentors now for 30 years. And, and, uh, uh, and so any of us that have any level of experience are so willing to share that with anyone. All you have to do is ask. So to those young people, just to say, please ask, please ask, because we're all willing to share that advice with you. So, um, well, thank you so much for, for being with me, William. It's been an absolute pleasure and continued success. Thanks, Paul. Really uh, pleased to spend some time with you and honored to be on the, on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. Until next time. (laughs) 